Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Happening in the world, um, it's heading in a certain direction. And obviously the direction is heading to the tribulation period, but ultimately it's culminating in the return of Jesus. And that's what we're going to study today is the second coming of the Messiah. And it is the high point of the Bible. It is the return of the Lord who is going to establish his kingdom. And we're going to take about two sermons to take a look at that and unpack that as best we can. And understand this, the second coming has two phases. The second coming has a rapture phase where believers are taken home to be with the Lord for seven years. And then there's a second coming where Jesus returns with us and the angels to go on the attack of the Antichrist and his armies and then also to rescue Israel. What I put into your bulletin is I put a little contrast between the rapture and the second coming. I'm not going to go through all of it. I just want to give that to you. Just stick in your Bible and use it as a handy resource. But there's definitely a difference between the second coming and the rapture. So anybody that tries to say they are the same event is simply not exegeting Scripture well. Because it's obvious that they are different events, different things occur, as you can tell. And so right now we're in the phase of waiting for the rapture to take us home. We don't know how long we have. It's a signless event where Christ comes in the atmosphere and then takes us home to be with him. We are, uh, go before him at the judgment seat of Christ, get our rewards for what we have done in service to him, and then we come back in this assault on planet Earth. So today what we're going to look at is the second coming. The second coming is part of the bold judgments. It's part of God's culmination of bringing judgment to this earth and to the people of this earth for their rebellion. And as you can see, we've studied the book of Revelation, and things have been unfolding, and what I think Revelation is showing us is God's merciful and just in doing what he's doing. He first hits the planet in the tribulation period with the sealed judgments, and basically gives humanity what you've reaped, you've sown, and you're getting what you deserve back to you. And so you see that with the sealed judgments. And then with the trumpet judgment, you see the environment turn on man. Obviously, God caused it through angels. The environment turns on man for man's prideful attitude, that thinking that he can control the environment, thinking that he can somehow live with the environment never changing like it did in the flood, where where God can show humanity, no, you're not in control of this environment and the cosmos. I am, and let me show you how. And then he allows the other part of creation, demons, to actually attack human beings to say, this is what you're worshiping, and let me show you what you're worshiping. So these are acts of grace and mercy, and you have to see that God's trying to show humanity, don't go all the way. Don't go all the way, because eventually I'm going to have to directly get involved. And he does, and we see that with the, uh, the bold judgments, where God starts directly handling the judgments coming from him. In other situations, he's using angels as secondary means. But now you'll see in the bold judgments, it's God himself. And it culminates with Jesus directly coming back and finishing the job. And and what you're seeing, uh, 
today, and this is the title of today's message in the second coming, is when ending something is required. And that's the principle we want to take home with us because humanity will reach a certain level to where the great majority of people will not be savable. They will put themselves in a state where they'll cross a line, accept the Antichrist, where they're not coming back. And so God is showing us a principle in Scripture that I can give grace and I can give mercy and I can give all the chances to the majority of human beings, and at the end of it, they will reject me. And they leave me with no choice. I have to put it into this. And that's what you're going to see God do. He's going to stop it. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like a parent that goes away for the weekend, leaves his teenager there at the house, and he leaves and says, don't make a mess of things. When I get back, everything better be in order. And, then, and the mom and dad come back Sunday night, and they come in, and they see people passed out on the front yard. Their house is thrashed. It's apparently, the teenagers had a party. There's people floating in the pool. There's people asleep in the living room on the floor. There's vomit everywhere. There's food everywhere. There's alcohol, drugs everywhere. And so what is a parent supposed to do? Oh, well, boys will be boys. No. That parent goes in there saying, I'm kicking everyone out. And then I'm going to discipline the one that let this happen. And that's in essence what's happening. God is saying, look, I'm going away, but don't mess this up. The government, the political structure, the morality structure, that, that's what I'm talking about environment. I'm not talking about like the birds and trees and stuff like that. I'm talking about the world that I gave you. Don't mess this up. And the problem is we're heading to hell in a handbasket and no one's stopping it. If you watch what's happening in our systems today and, and you saw it on the video, the, the whole world is getting out of control. The mentality of people in our country is getting so out of control, you can't even talk rationally to anybody anymore. And this was obviously evident in this Senate hearing over the Supreme Court nominee of Kavanaugh. I've never seen anything like this. This is completely unhinged. Well, anyway, this is heading in a direction. And it doesn't get fixed until Jesus comes back and says, okay, playtime's over. The adult's home. And uh, we're going to start cleaning up the mess. And that's what you want to see. Interesting enough, just as an aside, we're talking about the rapture, talking about the second coming. A lot of people have questions. Well, what if the rapture happens and I leave my pets behind? Will God take care of my pets? Believe it or not, this is a concern for people for some reason. I don't know why. But if you are concerned about your pets, if the Lord takes you home... There's an organization you actually can call Eternal Earthbound Pets USA, the next best thing to pet salvation in a post-raptured world. You can pay them $115, and they will take care of your pets once you're gone. (laughs) Now, the reason why they're okay with being left behind is this is an atheist group. And it's legit. It's totally legit. And obviously the atheist doesn't believe there's going to be a rapture, but he goes, I'll gladly take $115 from you if you think you're going to be gone, and I will gladly take care of your pets once you are removed from the planet. The question was asked, why did you start a company like this? He goes, well, I just wanted to make some extra cash. And so, believe it or not, 
He's getting extra cash from people paying for their animals to be taken care of. I just, I would think that would be the last thing on your mind if you're going to heaven is, where's Fido? You know, it's just, wow. Okay. But anyway, incidentally, that's something you can look into if you want to pay $115 to an atheist who will take care of your animals. Anyway, but the, the setting is this, is this is different than the first coming, this is the second coming. And this is what people have a hard time getting their arms around with Jesus. And you have to understand the full revelation of who Jesus is. He's God, obviously. But the problem is most people's version of Jesus is his first coming, where he's a suffering servant and obviously takes a lot of heat and people are abusing him. Obviously, they beat him. Had a nine tails, they put him on a cross, and he allowed them to do that because of the sacrifice that needed to happen. And so their mentality is that of Jesus. And they haven't went off of that mentality. And obviously, it is a truth about him, and that was for the first coming. But then when you move them into the realm of the second coming of Jesus, that really throws people off. Because they're not used to seeing a warrior king coming to do battle with Jesus. In their minds, obviously, and this is wrong, but they have a picture of Jesus where he's like this, this Scandinavian, blue-eyed, blonde-haired guy with a lamb around his neck, and you know, gentle Jesus wouldn't hurt a fly. And man, that's a totally wrong picture of Jesus. It's totally wrong. And people have actually bought into that. The picture you want to have is a balance of not only the first coming, but you have to balance that with the warrior king. And that picture of a warrior king, sometimes, man, it gets bloody, as you'll see today. And you have to get your arms around it, because it's a full manifestation of who God is, who the Messiah is, and what he has come to do. Revelation 1-7 says this, when Revelation starts, look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, talking about the Jews, And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be. Amen. Notice that word mourn. They won't be happy when he comes back. Now, we'll be happy because we're coming back with them. The Jews will be happy because they've come to faith in him, and any saved Gentiles will be happy. But the majority of planet earth will not be happy. They will try to fight him from coming back. And this is why you see in our society, there's such a scoffing at prophecy, even within the church. I think unbelievably so that there's a lot of apostate Christianity that doesn't want to talk about the return of Christ because it means their doom. It means their judgment. And that's what's associated with the second coming. It's not dancing through the tip, uh, you know, tiptoeing through the tulips and, and rainbows and unicorns running around. It's war. He's coming back to settle the score to bring the bubble back to circle, to right all the wrongs, especially all the wrongs that have been done to you and I, all the believers of of all the ages. It's hardcore, and you better get used to it because that's the full picture of the Messiah. Now, what you're going to see today is titles and, and little aspects that are connected to the second coming, and this is all important to understand, and I'm going to flush it out as best I can. So let's jump into verse 11 of Revelation 19, and let's start parsing this out and unpacking this. Now, I saw heaven opened. The idea in the Greek is a perfect passive participle indicates this is an unchanging nature, that once this starts, we're not going back. 
That Messiah is coming. And so the heaven is open. It's talking about the first atmospheric heaven, uh, heaven, which is around planet Earth. God opens that up and allows heaven, the third heaven, to come through, which is Jesus and his army coming with him. And he says the first thing he sees is a, behold, a white horse. Again, like I've told you, the book of Revelation is extremely Jewish, and we have to understand the Jewish concept of this. I don't believe, like some commentators say, that this is a Roman general entering into Rome with the enemies behind him, and that's not the picture. I don't think John's using the picture of Rome in this. I think he's using a Hebraic understanding of a white horse. The Hebraic understanding of a white horse is that king, Hebraic kings rode into battle with horses, that a horse was a symbol of war. The idea of white, though, in our understanding of the Bible, the Hebraic understanding, is purity, holiness, triumph. That's the image that John sees. Just to add a little bit more to this is Psalm 18. And we get a picture of Psalm 18, we get a picture of more than what this horse is. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Just referring to the second coming, by the way. Smoke went up from his nostrils. It's all metaphoric with the judgment of the Messiah. And devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. And he rode, just talking about Yahweh, the Messiah, upon a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. So when you combine Revelation 19 with Psalm 18, it's a white horse, but it's a horse-like cherub angel that he rides upon. Remember, some of the angels don't look human. Some of them look like animals. And this particular cherub is horse-like in its feature. And so that's what Jesus rides when he comes back, uh, is riding upon a cherub. Also, you and I, you'll see in the text, are riding upon white horse cherubs as well. We'll come back and that will be our, our, our modus of operandi as we come back from heaven to planet earth with Jesus. Interesting enough, I want to make a historical note here. If you've ever studied World War I, something happened on December 11th, 1917, after the British had, had taken Jerusalem from the Turks. And uh, General Allenby, uh, obviously, after the Turks surrendered, came into Jerusalem on a horse. And you can see the horse right there. This is December 11th, 1917. Allenby is a Christian, or was a Christian. He's still, obviously, if he's a Christian, he's in heaven now. But he was a Christian who understood the scriptures pretty well. And as he came in and rode into Jerusalem, before he got into the Jaffa Gate... He dismounted his horse, and he got off, and you can see this pitch, these other pictures. He walked into Jerusalem, into the Jaffa Gate once he took it from the Turks. And there's an, I think we have another picture as he walked in. This is the Jaffa Gate coming into Jerusalem. Now you say, what, why is that historically notable? Well, as far as Christians are concerned, you know why he did that? Because he said this, only kings ride a horse into Jerusalem. Only Jesus will ride a horse into Jerusalem. I am no king like Jesus, so I will walk in humbly into Jerusalem 
And so even his own understanding of the Bible prevented him from riding in to Jerusalem on a horse because only Jesus does that. Isn't that amazing? That's back in 1917. Anyway, back to our text. It calls Jesus, and he who sat on him was faithful and true. Now, the idea of faithful and true is in contrast with the Antichrist. Again, this is a Jewish context, so it's referring to not only Jesus, but it's in contrast to the Antichrist. Because, see, the Jews have done a deal with the devil, with the Antichrist, and he has tricked them. He has lied to them and has deceived them because they did a covenant with him and they thought, again, he's the one, he's the Messiah, and they cut a deal with him. And so, in contrast, Jesus says, no, I'm the faithful one, I'm the true one, I don't break my promises like the Antichrist does. I'm the true Messiah. And then it says, in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So the idea that the spear of judgment that you're going to see, where Jesus is going to slaughter people, is in righteousness. This is hard for people to, to grasp, because you're going to see Jesus just wipe people out. Just, just smoke them. Just, just melt them, literally. And we'll go over in detail of that. And so the idea is, no, this is all done in righteous. He has the right to execute these people for what they have done. And that's why he can judge and make war and still be clean. Because the accusation against, obviously, that the scripture's anticipating is that people would say, how can God, a loving God, do such a thing? Because God is God of justice. There must be a payday someday. There must be a reconciling of the evil that people have done. And we understand even in our court systems. Does our judges or or juries say, well, boys will be boys, let's just let them off because I'm a loving judge. No, a judge, to be a good judge, you send them to jail or you send them to the, the electric chair or the gas chamber or lethal injection or whatever it is. We understand that, that there has to be a payday for what somebody's done. And so this is what we're seeing, and it's in righteousness that it's being done. And it goes in verse 12, his eyes were like a flame of fire. To understand all these are all metaphorical languages, there's no doubt that when John saw Jesus, he says, I saw fire coming from his eyes. It's literal but metaphoric as well. What does it mean? Anytime eyes are referenced to the Messiah, it means his omniscience, that he knows all. And then also the fire has to do with judgment. And so the idea is that his judgment comes from being omniscient. Jesus knows all that was said in secret. He knows all that happened behind closed doors. There's nothing that was not revealed to him that he knows through his omniscience. And so therefore he is the ultimate judge, jury, and executioner by himself because of his omniscience, because of knowing everything. And it says on his head were many crowns. Again, very Hebraic. It's, a, it's, it's multiple crowns. It's many. And it's diadems, not Stephanuses. Diadems are king crowns, permanent crowns. Stephanuses are like what you would get at the Olympics. You know, a temporary, an award, so to speak, a trophy, so to speak. These are diadems. And the Hebraic understanding is this. When kings in the Hebraic culture took over, they would take that other crown of a king and put it on their head. And David did this when he, when he attacked the Ammonites. 
He took the crown of the Ammonite king and put it on his head. That's a way of showing that I am now king of this territory now. Now, notice the multiple crowns. This is a direct reference to the ten kings that will rule the one world government. And then obviously the Antichrist crown as well. The idea is this, that he is taking all the enemy's crowns and now he's absolute ruler overall. This is extremely Hebraic. That's how you show that I'm in now control. And so John is seeing all these multiple crowns on his head and it goes back to now Christ, the second Adam, is ruler over all creation. And you think, well, what do you mean the second Adam? How are you tying Adam into this? Well, remember, he's the second Adam. The first Adam was the king over this planet. And he had dominion over this planet. Adam was the king. The queen was Eve. But Satan usurped them by getting them to fall. When Satan usurped them, he became the usurper and what's called the god of this planet, little g, the controller of the system. And he was given that authority. He had usurped it. Adam and the rest of humanity had lost their authority, and we don't have our authority yet. But at the cross, more was done at the cross than just your and my redemption. Well, what happened at the cross is that Jesus got our authority and dominion back to where we could rule and reign over this planet and be sovereigns over it as Adam and Eve were supposed to be. Where do I get this? Well, you get this from Revelation chapter 5. Let's read this. And I saw him in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back. That scroll includes the judgments of the tribulation, but how we get our dominion back. It's basically the title deed to planet Earth. And a seal with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy. The idea is that there was no human beings ever up until this point that is worthy to reclaim what Adam lost. And in order to reclaim what Adam lost, not only did you have to do a sacrifice for humanity, but you had to have the power to execute the judgment to get rid of the rebels out of the planet. That's the idea. Let's go on. To open the scroll and look at it. But one of the elders is from the church said to me, do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it been, had been slayed and slain. The idea is that is what got our dominion back. The lamb that had been slain. Having seven horns and seven eyes that has to do with power. Seven eyes has to do with omniscience which are the seven spirits of God sent into the, all the earth. That's, again, the use of the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Who's in the throne? God the Father. So the Messiah approaches God the Father. Now, when he had taken the scroll, so he takes it from the, God the Father, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain 
and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. And here's the clincher. Now, we got the redemption part. And have made us what? Kings and priests to our God. And what? And we shall reign on earth. So the twofold aspect of the cross was not only for our redemption, but to get us back into status of having the right to be a king and a priest over this planet, which Adam had lost. That's what the diadems represent, that he's coming back to establish our rule and reign and to banish the usurper. The usurper is Satan. And his man is the Antichrist. These are nothing but usurpers. And the world is getting ready to embrace the usurper. Because he's coming. And they will love him to death. They will think he is God. And so that's the title deed of planet Earth. And Jesus got it back. Now, let's go back to the text. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. This idea that this is a secret name of Jesus, it's his new name that we will know once we're in the kingdom. It reveals a different aspect of Jesus, yet we don't know. And here's what we have to understand. It will, it will correspond with the second coming and the rulership of Jesus in the kingdom. We will learn another facet about Jesus that we did not know. And we will do this for all eternity, by the way. Because God is eternal, we can never exhaust our understanding of him. We will always be learning who God is, who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is, who God the Father is. The triune God will be inexhaustible in our understanding of him. And hundreds of thousands of years into eternity, you will still be learning new stuff about God. You never can exhaust it. And so this is why this name is associated to the the kingdom and the second coming. We will learn that. Right now, we don't know. Verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And again, this blood is symbolic. I made a note here. It's symbolic of the blood about to be shed by his enemies, by his judgment. So this this idea that this is hard for people to grasp, this is not his blood? No, it's the blood of his enemies on him. And again, he's not went to war yet because he's still coming down, but... It's a representation of the blood that's going to splatter on him from slaying people. This is a direct reference to Isaiah 63. I want to show you this passage. And it is bloody. It says, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, this one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? Obviously, it's the Messiah, okay? And why is Basra or Edom or what we know as Petra in Jordan referenced? It's because there's where he first goes. Before he touches planet Earth, he's hovering, and he goes there to rescue the remnant of Jews that are are entrapped in Petra, surrounded by the Antichrist armies. So it's a rescue mission to Israel, okay? That's why he goes there first. He hasn't touched the ground yet. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? The idea is crushing grapes and the wine splatters up like blood. I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury their blood is sprinkled upon my garments there's the answer it's their blood 
And I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. So it is the Messiah who fights alone, And as he fights, the blood is splashing on him as he's slain the armies of the Antichrist. I'm going to show you next week more detail about that. I'm going to show you how the Antichrist is killed by Jesus and what happens to him and all the details of that. But just a broad understanding is what we need to get today is that this thing's bloody. Let me add one more passage to this. This is Revelation 14. And another angel came from the altar who had power over fire and cried with a loud cry to him who had sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust the sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. So this is, this is metaphoric language, obviously, of saying judgment is going to happen and this idea of winepress and grapes of, of the crushing is going to happen. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs, basically 200 miles square. So let me show you something real quick on a map. The top dot, the yellow dot on there is where Antichrist puts his armies in the Jezreel Valley. The middle dot is Jerusalem. This other dot is Petra. And this is Elat. Now, When Jesus comes back and the armies of Antichrist are in Jerusalem and Petra and they actually start fighting with Jesus. So when Jesus gets back, he starts wiping out the armies of Antichrist. Okay, The the fighting, and, and I don't have time to show you all this, starts here, goes down here, and then comes back up to Jerusalem. The exact mileage from Jerusalem to Elat that includes Petra Guess what? 200 miles square. So if you can imagine from the middle dot to Jerusalem, including Petra, all the way down to Elat, where the rest of the fighting happens, blood as high as the horse's bridle. So you're talking about five feet lakes of blood. I mean, you can see these these artist renditions of this. Get your arms around this one. There's so many antichrist armies scattered all over this place and you'll see this when jesus wipes them out he congeals them he like melts them into fluid and all that's left is their blood it's just a a congealment of a lake of blood 200 miles square about four to five feet deep i know that's not a pretty picture on a sunday morning and it's not the picture of a scandinavian jesus with blue eyes and blonde hair No, this is war. This is the warrior king portrayed in the Old Testament, now being seen as through the Messiah. And this is the theme. And you have to get your arms around this. And remember, he does this in righteousness. They deserve this. It's bad, I know. But it is right. And it is good. There's an interesting quote I want to give you. C.S. Lewis once stated it, and he put it in one of the books in Narnia. And I can't remember what book. I'm going off the top of my head. He goes like this about Jesus. They, oh, it was about Aslan. He goes, is Aslan safe 
Is he a safe lion? And I can't remember the character that responded, but he said this. Oh, he's not safe. He's not a tamed lion, but he is good. I said, man, he nailed it. Do not think for a moment that Jesus is safe, but he is good. Because when you see the warrior king, this ain't safety. This is him going out and slaughtering humanity, just slaughtering them because they deserve it. They deserve the slaughtering. And I know it's hard for our Western minds to get across, but man, if you're in the Hebraic culture, you totally got this. This is King David. This is David fighting Goliath. And remember this idea that even you've seen in Isaiah that I alone fought the war. I alone did it. It was my own arm who did this. That it's Messiah that does all the fighting, right? It's a, it was pictured with David and Goliath. Did the armies of Israel fight? No. It was David who fought, right? It was David who fought Goliath. And that's the same typology you'll see with Messiah. It's only Messiah that needs to fight. We don't fight. We watch it. We watch it unfold. And we're just simply spectators in the whole thing. Let's return back to the text. And his name is called the word of God. So John links this to his gospel. That this is the the full manifestation of God. So when you're seeing this, you have seen the father. Remember the disciples kept asking, just show us the father. Remember that? And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. I, I am God. I am. So when you see me act, that's just how the Father acts. This is how the Holy Spirit acts. So this is the thing that, that really irks me. And I see this with these apostates, like Andy Stanley. And they'll say, well, the God of the Old Testament is vengeful and wrathful, and that's not Jesus. And they're like, you fool. It is Jesus. Who do you think is dealing with people in the Old Testament? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you see Joshua go in... To, to places in, in, in Canaan, and Joshua is told by Yahweh, wipe them out. I want all of them dead. I don't want any animals left, even Joshua. And Joshua, don't even touch their stuff. I want a harem. Wipe them out. Now, he didn't do it all to the cultures, but he did it to some of the cities. That's the same God. So if your version of Jesus, which a lot of these apostates will do, is have a perverted version of Jesus, that Jesus would never call down wrath on anybody. Well, that's, that's not the same Jesus of the Bible. I'm sorry, that's not Christianity. It's just simply not. That's some Marxist liberation theology Jesus. It's hardcore. But this is the Bible. Verse 14. And the armies in heaven... Clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's you and I, by the way. There's where you're at in the scripture. That's us. There's two armies named in this. And there's an angelic army, Matthew 16, 27, and a human army, Jude 14 through 15. But we're here. We're riding on those horses. And this, this clothed in fine linen, we talked about it last week. It's our righteous acts of the saints. It's our reward. And we're coming back with him. And, and again, we don't do any fighting. He does all the fighting, but we're coming back to escort and to watch him do battle. Verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. The idea of the sharp sword, again, it's all metaphoric language, but it's a romphea. 
And a romphae, let me show you a picture of a romphae. It's a very long sword. Sometimes the romphaeus would be used as a spear. It's not a thrusting sword like the Romans had. A romphae was large. And the idea, I mean, the, the, the way you want to think of it is like in Braveheart. The kind of swords that they have, these big, giant, just bulky, heavy swords that if you threw that sword at, and swung it at somebody... Just the weight of the sword would cleave people in half, right? It's that weighty sword that if you got a good cut on somebody, it's cutting them right in half is the idea, okay? I know this is gruesome, but hey, this is the language that Romphea means. And it's saying that Jesus, a metaphoric sword comes out of his mouth. It's his word because he's creator, right? And then the words he uses just strikes down people. I mean, just cleaves them and just crushes them every time he says something. So it's an indication of how Jesus fights. How did God create the universe? Spoke it. He is so powerful. All he has to do is speak something and he can speak things into reality. And when he comes back to fight, all he has to do is speak and uncreate does that make sense the power behind creation is also the power behind uncreating something he basically takes them back to their liquid form you know you're 90 percent liquid that's what he does he liquefies them which basically it's a understanding of uncreating what he created and he has the power to do it just simply by his words. That's why the, the word with the sword, romphiea, is being used is because he's just cleaving them and just decimating them. It's just a powerful blow from, from the creator. And then a, a little aside is given by John that he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. And then this is it's not directly talking about the second coming. So it's a preview of, of the millennial reign of Christ. But the rod of iron is the rod is a short staff that a shepherd held. But it was club-like. And the idea of the club is that he used this for enemies. The shepherd's staff is a longer and he used that for the sheep. But the club is for enemies. When it says in the millennial kingdom, he'll rule with a rod of iron. Rod of iron is unbreakable. It's strong. It's absolute monarchy. If, if the Jehovah Witnesses come to your door and they say, aren't you uh, uh, shocked about what our society is becoming? And what do you think would be the perfect form of government? Because they want you to say constitutional republic because they think you don't know scripture. And then they go off on their little spiel. But you tell them an absolute monarchy with Jesus on the throne. That will blow them away. They don't know how to deal with that one. You get them off track. They haven't memorized that one. And you tell the Jehovah's Witnesses, no, uh, the best form of government would be Jesus ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. That's the best form of government because he would rule in righteousness. But I can tell you this, the rod of iron, it's mean to beat people down. What do you mean by that? It means that in the kingdom age, if anyone acts up, if anyone gets out of line, boom, they're immediately put down. There is no more Senate hearing where you got jokers going crazy and losing their minds like Dianne Feinstein or any of these people you see in politics losing their They wouldn't exist in the kingdom. I can just tell you that right now because the rod of iron would beat them down. 
No more of those people like that. We won't have to see that anymore. Thank God for that. And you're like, wow, it's going to be a perfect environment with no jokers, no sin, no evil. Wow. I can't hardly get my mind around that. It's going to be glorious, though, I can tell you that. Anyway, he himself, there's this idea, again, solo. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. The idea of fierceness, it means exploding wrath. Anger in action. Wrath means a settled anger from his holiness that he's going to then tread the winepress. And so the idea, and you keep seeing this winepress idea in the old days, they put the grapes in a treading floor. And sometimes they had things that would hold on to a rope. And you go in there barefoot and you would step on grapes. And you would crush them, just crush them. And, and, and then what happened, the liquid would come out in a channel and go into these vats. And then they'd put it in the wine jars. And that's a, a very Hebraic understanding of what Jesus is going to do as he treads the grapes underfoot. Okay, why use the idea of grapes and wine? Because it's the color of blood. Blood, symbolically in the Hebraic culture, is a symbol for death and life. Life is in the blood, and you've got to know what context you're in. But in other contexts, blood is a symbol for death. And it will be the color red. So wine became a very good instrument, metaphorically, to speak to us, understanding that this is all going down pretty bad. This is all bloody. And he had on his robe and on his thigh a name written. In English, it's king of kings and lord of lords, but it will not be in English on his thigh. It will be in Hebrew. That's the language of heaven. And it will be melech ha melchim, Adonai ha Adonim. That is, is his title, king of kings and lord of lords. What does that mean? Three implications with this title. The first implication is absolutely ruler and dominion over all creation. He alone is supreme. That's number one. Two, that he will dispossess all earthly rulers. They will all be abolished because he is Melech, king. And three, and you know this phrase, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's from Isaiah 45. And you know that you got to know the background of that. Paul used that several times in the New Testament. What did it mean that every knee will bow and every tongue confess? Because in the Old Testament, it didn't mention the Messiah. It mentioned about God. And it's this. This is the context of King of Kings, Lord of Lords. That only God can save his people. There is no other God. So turn from idols and turn to Yahweh for salvation. And bow your knee to him. Now, before it's too late. That's the idea in Isaiah, and that's what's brought into the New Testament about the Messiah. Well, what do you mean by this? Because he's absolute ruler, because he's the absolute king, he is the rightful king of planet Earth, and the whole cosmos for that matter. You have a choice. You can bow a knee in your free will right now and accept him as Lord and Savior. And he will save you. He will rapture you. And we will go home. Or if you should die, you will be resurrected and you will be with him. Guaranteed. But if you monkey around, 
If you fool around with your life and you say, I'm not going to bow a knee, one day you will, but you will be forced to do it. And out of your mouth will be forced the words, Jesus is Lord. Right before you go to hell. I'm just going to tell you. Right before you're thrown into the lake of fire. Oh, Brandon, I can't believe you would, you would, you would be so uh, insensitive to my, my sensitivities and my snowflakeness that you would say something like that. Look, I'm only going to tell you the truth. That's how, it, that's how it goes. It's bloody. And you will be forced to say it. All the rest of this world, and I know I'm preaching to the choir. You, already, you, you guys have made your decision for Christ. But the rest of the world that's monkeying around out there, they will have that done to them. It will be forced out of their mouth. All the atheists, all the Richard Dawkins, and all those people, will have it forced out of their mouth. They will be forced to their knees and then cast into the lake of fire. That's what the great white throne judgment's about. Not pretty, is it? But he offers grace now. What's the point of all this? We haven't even got into the actual fighting, which we're going to be into next week. You got to do the application before we do that. Well, what's the application? It's the principle in the title. Sometimes there's things that we have to end. There's some things worth fixing and there's some things worth ending. And you have to discern whether something's fixable or whether something needs to end. Because right now you're seeing a passage that says, humanity gets so far out there, God's saying, I got to end it. I got to start all over in the kingdom because it's gotten so bad. So that's the principle to take away from this. Okay. But help me out in this, in the application. I mean, we obviously know Jesus is omniscient and because the text says he is. And because, so he would know when to end something. He would know when someone's crossed the line. That's, but how do I do that? Because I'm not omniscient. I'm a human being. Well, he does give us wisdom. He does tell you this is how you need to look at things. And the book of Proverbs and other passages of wisdom literature tell you when time is up with people. Because that's their major, our major problem. We don't know when something's time's up with certain people. How do we know? Well, give me a, let me give you a couple principles in this. The first thing is their past and whoever you're dealing with is a predictor of their future. As you can see in the book of Revelation... Every time God gave grace and mercy to the people in the tribulation, they blasphemed. Every time. They did it for three consecutive points. They just shook, shook their fist to God saying, curse you. There's the history, right? They're not coming back. When you're dealing with somebody, the past behavior is their track record. You have to look at their past. Why would I expect anything different if I look at someone's past for them to act differently unless something radically has changed in their life? Why would I expect anything different? That's insane. So project that into the future. If I have a trail of past behavior, I should expect the same behavior in the future. That's the message of revelation about these people. You, in effect, will keep arguing over the same stuff because they're not changing. When you realize, oh, unless something radically happened in their life, they're not changing, it's time to cut your loss and go on. You need to understand that. 
Now, I'm not talking about marriage or anything, because obviously you have to have biblical grounds for divorce or anything, but I'm talking about other relationships that you know you probably need to suffer, and they're not healthy for you. So you have the past behavior tells you something, and then the question is, is this the kind of person I should trust? What does their character tell you? See, character is a major issue. Who am I dealing with is character. Character sets up their destiny, but character is the reality of that person. Please, one of the things you have to guard yourself with people is don't get caught up in the wish of the person. I wish they were different. I wish things would change. That's a false hope. That's a false wish. And you will get stuck in that. Don't ignore the clear reality of character. Character will tell you everything. It will tell you how weird they are, how goofy they are, how messed up they are, addictive behaviors. It will tell you everything. But people seem to ignore that because they have wishful thinking. Oh, I hope they just they get their act straightened. Hmm. And understand this, <laughs> that being sorry and promising that it will never happen again or saying they're going to try really, really hard doesn't change the reality of people. Do you take advice from proven non-performers? If they keep coming to you, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. How many sorries are are they going to keep saying to you? Hey, enough's enough, dude. You've crossed the line. You're not changing. You're not coming back. So I need to cut this off. A couple diagnostic questions before we leave. I want you to think about this. And if you truly want to know, have they changed? Answer these questions about them right now. Watch this. Do they have the character required to make the future better? Number one, are they verifiably involved in the change process? If you can't say yes, then what are we talking about here? Two, do they have the structure in their life that facilitates growth? Huh. Who is monitoring them? Are you seeing them develop their gifting from the Holy Spirit? Do they have the motivation or are they constantly needing to be handheld? Do they admit their need to change? Do they have support? Do they have skilled help, like a counselor? Have they had some success in growing recently? What new truth are they incorporating into, into their spiritual lives? And where is the energy coming from them to drive the change? Who's putting pressure on them is the idea. Now, these are diagnostic questions I would use in counseling. And and I wouldn't say this out loud, but I've been thinking this through my head. If someone truly wants to change, all questions have to be answered in the affirmative. They are getting support. They are part of the process. They do want to change. They have a navigator. They have a counselor. There's someone's helping them. If they don't have it, they're lying to you. And you have to understand that. Don't play the game. Because as you see with Jesus, he doesn't play any games. He gives them a chance, gives them a chance, and then at that, he says, I'm done. And I'm going to start over again. And I'm getting rid of these people. So again, it's not not trying to be cutthroat. It's just simply to understand, who am I dealing with? You might have a crazy relative that you know you need to cut off today. And you know, hey, we've been messing around with this guy. He's crazy. He keeps coming to Thanksgiving and, and Christmas and ruining the whole thing because he can't get his act together. Hey, you know what? Cut that guy off. Jesus wouldn't do that. Wait a second. I just showed you a text he did. 
In fact, he, he cuts off the mass of my humanity. How can you say Jesus wouldn't do that? Let me show you an illustration. We'll end here. Let me show you these mountains real quick. These are in Peru. These are the mountaintops of Saula Grande. It's an extreme peak. It's about one hour drive from Lima, I believe it is. It's kind of like a Mount Everest type of place where a lot of people go and they, they, uh, they climb these peaks. And it has a perpetual snow cap on the top. And they go and climb these peaks, and it's just like climbing Mount Everest for a lot of people. I think it's like 21,000 feet in the air. But anyway, I, I, it's hard to imagine someone would do that, but they do. Anyway, back in 1985, two climbers went up there by the name of Simon Yates and Joe Simpson. And uh, they were climbing up there, got to the peak, got to the top. Then they started to descend and came down, and Joe Simpson fell off a ledge and shattered his leg. Well, that's a problem because you're trying to get down there and you don't want to get stuck up there at night or whatnot and freeze to death. So they're trying to get to base camp. Anyway, Simon Yates is trying to help him. And so he actually put him on a rope, tied him to a rope and was letting Joe Simpson down because he couldn't climb and, and, and he was letting him down off of a ledge down to another ledge. And he was letting him down because he's going to just kind of just slowly get him down and he was letting him down and he finally realized he had let him over a ledge where there was no other ledge below it and they were dangling he was dangling over the edge and he had ran out of rope and he didn't know what to do because he thought there was a ledge there and there wasn't and he couldn't pull him back up And then all of a sudden, the snow under him started giving away. And he felt the shift of that rope pulling him over his side of the edge. And he goes, I don't know what, I didn't know what to do. So he's, he's thinking all the scenarios in his head. And he goes, I'm going to get pulled over the edge and I'm going to, I'm going to die too. I don't know what to do. And he went through all the scenarios like, okay, man, if I let him go, I'm gonna, he's going to die. But if I don't let him go, we're both going to die. And he's like, man, you know, is it a coward to not want to die with him or whatnot? And he didn't know what to do. So he finally, after an hour and a half of holding his friend there, he decided to take his penknife out. And he got that penknife and he cut him. He cut that line. And just let him drop. Now he saved his own life. But what he didn't realize is when he cut that line, that the Simpson guy dropped uh, about 50 feet. But he fell into a crevice that had kind of a powdery pack. It was real powdery and fluffy. And he fell and he actually was able to take in his fall. And he actually didn't get hurt as he fell that 50 feet. Well, this Joe Simpson that fell and had that broken leg, well, he, he was given up for dead. So this, this other guy, Simon Yates, walked back to base camp feeling terrible. But over several hours, this Joe Simpson realized he had been cradled in this powdery snow. And then he got up and he started limping and dragging himself. And within several hours, he got to base camp and he was alive. And they were shocked that he had actually lived through that. And again, 
It had to be a God thing to fall into a crevice of powdery snow where it actually cradled you in. But what was the moral of the story about this? And Joe Simpson and Simon Yates will both say this. Joe Simpson goes, I'm glad he did cut me. Because now that we know what happened, he goes, we would have both died. But fortunately, he cut me and I was able to be impacted by the powdery snow. And we both lived because he was willing to cut me off. Oh. Do you see the point of the story? If you're not willing to end it with certain people, they will take you over the cliff as well and destroy you. You got to be willing to get the penknife out and cut that rope and say, I'm done with you. I hope on the other side, God provides a snowpack for you, but you're going to have to crawl to base camp on your own, but I'm not enabling you anymore. And you cut them off. That's one application we can take away from watching this. There'll be more to come next week with the second coming. But it is righteousness, and that's how you deal with people. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.